All right. Welcome to the green room. We're here with Disrupt TV. I'm here with my amazing co-host, Bala Afshar, our producer, L, and of course, our two great guests. We're going to go in reverse order, do some quick intros, help me know where you're coming in from. And of course, what are we talking about today in a very, very short blurb before we kick off the show? So, David, what are we talking about today? Where are you? Well, what I'm hoping is we talk about the manager's handbook and the discoveries that I had over the last three years when I was researching the difference between, you know, the everyday manager and the people that were so amazing at getting things done and those discoveries along the way. Oh, now stay focused, make better decisions and crush your competition, as you say. Very, very cool. All right, Mike, welcome. Where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Hey, Ray, I'm coming in from Westport, Connecticut, and I'm going to talk about whatever you and Vala want to talk about. You two are in charge and large. So, uh, but I, look, I was the author of Never Enough. I've had a, a life of, uh, of a variety of different positions and through everything I've, you know, made, made, Plenty of opportunity to make mistakes and learned a lot along the way and love to share whatever I can. Amazing book, really talking about life of excellence, agility, and meaning. So very, very cool. Well, hey, with that, turn it back to you, Al. Let's kick it off. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on X at Disrupt TV Show. Send us questions using hashtag Disrupt TV and Ray and I will do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I see Ray on TV, technology and business news every day. He's on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC. In my opinion, he's one of the top features to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Bala after our chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business, but that's in the past. His new book, Boundless, A New Mindset for Unlimited Business Success, I don't have it with me right now, will be available. And it's constantly available in every bookstore, but Mike has it, and that's more important. This book is about business flow, a new mindset, and unlimited business success. You're going to hear the word flow a lot, and that's because of Bala and Henry King. And of course, executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. You know, when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him on TV, on business outlets like Bloomberg, and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. So thanks a lot for everyone here for being us. But it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And wow, we have some amazing guests today, Vala. Uh, unbelievable honor, privilege for us to have. We only get the best-selling authors and titans of industry to come on our show and our first guest is no exception. Mike Hayes is Chief Operating Officer at VMware, an author of Never Enough, a Navy SEAL commander on living a life of excellence, agility, and meaning. Mike is the Chief Operating Officer at VMware, responsible for VMware's worldwide business operations, transformation, and acceleration of the company's SaaS transition. Prior to VMware, Mike served as the Senior Vice President and Head of Strategic Operations for Cognizant Technologies, where he ran a $2 billion PL for the largest financial services clients. Mike spent 20 years in the US Navy SEALs, where his career began as one of 19 graduates from a class of 120. His last job uh, in the Navy was the commanding officer of the SEAL Team 2, which included 10 months as commander of 2,000-person Special Operations Task Force in Southern Afghanistan. Mike was selected as White House Fellow and served two years as Director of Defense Policy Strategy and National Security Council. Mike has worked directly with two presidents, George W. Bush and President Obama. 
His military uh, decorations uh, include the Bronze Star for Valor in combat in Iraq, a Bronze Star for Afghanistan, and Defense Superior Service Medal from White House. He is the best-selling author of Never Enough, uh, my highest book recommendation of 2023. Uh, quite an emotional book. Um, I found myself in instances um, tearing up uh, reading his book, and I can't say that about the last book I've read that had such an emotional connection with me. You can follow Mike on X at This Is Mike Hayes, and he's super prolific on LinkedIn. So a must follow on LinkedIn. Welcome, Mike, to Disrupt TV. And sorry I had to cut your bio short. We only have a half hour. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to start. Hey, Vala, thank you so much. Ray, what a pleasure to be here. Let me start by just saying thanks to each of you two for all of the incredible impact that you've had, not just on the great nation of, of the United States, but for the world and the planet. You two are amazing. And of course, Salesforce, Constellation Resource, uh, sorry, Research, also amazing. So thanks to each of you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, sir. Oh, well, hey, thanks a lot. And, and we're really here to share and learn from each other. And that's really some of the great things that inside your book, right? Um, I mean, you've got a unique track record at high-performing organizations. Like some of these are some of the tops in their field. Didn't matter where you were, whether it's Bridgewater, Cognizant, VMware at the point, right? I mean, but 20 years in the SEALs, two White Houses, right? That's crazy. So, and now you've put all these things together. You got bronze stars from combat, right? High pressure meetings. I mean, the White House Situation Room may have looked simple compared to what's going on with boardrooms, or maybe it's the other way around. Who knows? And that's what we really want to learn from you. Um, all these different organizations, different roles, different leadership styles, and command and control structures, uh, and ways that people govern. What what patterns did you see emerge that come out in terms of great leadership, great management uh, in all those different kind of environments? Because you have amazing pattern sets that you can actually draw on. Well, great uh, question to start. Thank you, Ray. I would say the most important thing to me is almost starting where Vala ended, which is it's that life is really about people, whether you're in the SEALs, whether you're in White Houses or in any sort of a boardroom in any enterprise of any size. The thing that I've recognized through time is uh, really comes from wisdom, which is a series of learnings from a bunch of things you you wish you could have done differently or wish you came out came out differently. So, uh, you know, I've, I've had the fortune and misfortune of, of living through all of the ups and downs of everything that our nation has asked of our military forces. And, um, and you know, I've buried 70 friends as almost all of my friends. Oh, wow. Era. And so I, I've got perspective. I've been shot at. I've been rocketed. I've you know, amputated a teammate's leg. I've jumped out of a building that was willing to explode. You know, and, and I'm not unique. Every SEAL has, has their stories that are very similar. And so with all of that, what I would say is that uh, the most important thing is being a positive presence in other people's lives. Living a life of meaning and purpose is, is really what pulls people up. Where the average of the people we hang out with is something I always say. And so I like to hang out with guys like you, Vala and Ray, because you pull me up. You're smarter, you're faster, you're stronger. And, uh, and so that, the first thing I would say is really common across everything is just that desire for excellence. Uh, the, the title of the book, which my mom and my publisher originally hated, uh, was ne you know, Never Enough, was, oh, oh how, you know, I'm never enough. What does that mean? And, uh, and I would just say it's really about striving for excellence. And I often say you're only excellent if you know you're never excellent enough. Wow. That is deep. So it's you're, you're radically transparent in the book. Um, you share some real uh, personal insights. You you with honor and grace reference your friends who lost their lives uh, on, on several missions. You end the book with a story about your daughter uh, working at a clinic in Dominican Republic. And I'm literally crying reading your book. I don't. I don't know why I'm uh, it publicly. You know, a few hundred thousand watched this show. I don't know why I'm saying this, but it 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 was uh, such a graceful, such an impactful summary of excellence, agility, and and meaning. And you brought a lot of that uh, to VMware in the last few years. You've steered the company through incredible complex business transformation. You know, these were not quite life and death decisions that you had to make as a 20-year SEAL and a commander, but really important decisions on multidimensional uh, surface areas. And, and this uh, selling from uh, uh, perpetual license to SaaS model uh, is incredible uh, pivots. 
and an inflection point in VMware's uh, history. Why is this transformation important? And how did you apply these incredible SEAL lessons? And by the way, we're not smarter and stronger. Definitely not stronger. He, Ray, he can do 50 pull-ups. Like you and I combined can do five. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm doing one. Do one. I don't know. I've never <laughs> so, been able to do one. So. so talk to us about the transformation at VMware and how your leadership principles of excellence, agility, and meaning applies to executives running large organizations today. Uh, you know, Vala, that question is almost an extension of Ray's. It, it, to me, when you think about software as a service and the as a service, you know, uh, you know, movement, if you will, it's all about one thing. It's value. It's value shifting to the customer, the consumer. And so I think it's so incredibly important to really think about doing more for others than self. And when you solve hard problems, then you share in the victory and in the win. And whether it's life or, or in business, you share in the economic value that you create. And so for me, I think like as VMware has pivoted from you know, perpetual licenses and, and potentially sometimes like every single software uh, vendor, it, you know, sometimes selling things that end up on the shelf and don't get used. And so as you pivot to the as a service world, you are really only uh, helping, you, you, are, uh, you are enabling the customer to only pay for what they value and what they use. Now that's more risk for a business. Look, it's a lot better for me to sell you something you never use and me to put money in my pocket. I don't, I and all the leadership of VMware and the board, like nobody feels as good about that as the model where we, uh, we, uh, we, we, we get paid for the value we create in your business. And, and first and foremost, you get more out of the deal than, than we do. And, but the thing is, when we win together, we, we, that the, the classic saying, rising tide floats all boats, it's cliche for a reason. But that, that transformation externally has been uh, very, very fun, very successful. But with that, there's also an internal transformation because mm -hmm. there's not, you, it's not like a, in a large enterprise, you both know this better than I do. You can't just flip a switch and all of a sudden everything's, uh, everything's changed. It takes work. It takes effort. And it connects back to that first question as well, Vala. Great answer. Yeah, great no, answer. a lot of great stuff. We talk about uh, teams, players, coaches, everyone else, teams, teammates, self, right, uh, and, and relationships. Uh, and these relationships are hard to build over time, especially high-performing teams. Uh, what, what is the important piece between bringing together relationships and tying that leader with technologies, relationships, and people? Because those are easy intersections. They're all very, very different areas. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you see that coming together? And you know, sometimes technology helps. Sometimes technology is the barrier. Sometimes uh, you know, the leadership styles are different. right? And you know, it's, it's almost like there are patterns here as well that you probably have a, an unveiled over the years to say, hey, this is going to be a great team. This is going to be a team that needs some work. This is going to need some teams that we're going to actually use something else to actually improve that work, right? And they all come together. Uh, it, it's, it's really amazing. The thing, Ray, that I think you're hitting on is that technology is a means to an end. A lot of times we can mm -hmm. hold up technology as the thing. Technology is never the thing. The thing is what technology creates. What does it enable you to do? What superpower does it give you? How does it help you save time? How does it make you more secure? How does, what, what is the outcome? And so I think a lot of times uh, we miss the opportunity to really focus on outcome-based thinking. And, uh, and, and that's why I think, you know, and Vala wrote about this, uh, you know, with, with Henry King in, in Boundless. It's, it's moving from, you know, independence to interdependence and recognizing nope. that it is a team and we all come together. You know, as we've come out of COVID, I've been often asked, how do you think about resilience? Well, in the SEALs, you know, whether we, we could be absolutely up or absolutely down, but what matters the most is relativism. Because on any team, somebody is always relatively up and somebody else is always relatively down. And so the person who's relatively up has to reach in, help the person who's relatively down. Because today I'm up, tomorrow I'm going to be the one who's down. You know, my my grandfather was um, at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, on the, the day of infamy. And oh he had lived a life of, of tons of wisdom that I, I garnered from him. And, and, and he's my greatest hero. Uh, and, and I can't wait to see him again someday. Not not too soon, because as he said, Mike, don't die for your country. Go on living for it. But <laughs> the, the, the reason I brought him up now was because I was just reminded as I was giving that that last talk about relatively up and relatively down in the words of my grandfather. When, when you are down, 
the best thing to do is find somebody who else is further down than you are and pull up. So these are interesting patterns, right? The reason I'm I'm going to dwell a little bit longer here is that that kind of portfolio management of a team is not easy to learn, right? I mean, you're creating not only leadership, you're creating interdependence, and you're also trying to manage, right? You can't burn a team too hard too long, right? They're going to burn out, right? If you operate at such a high performance level, they still need to find breaks. They still need to find, you know, some way to actually recover. And so, so that cycle not only in a team like, you know, in the Navy SEALs, but that cycle in a company going through merger acquisition or going through a product launch or going through, uh, you know, um, a hostile takeover, right? All these things, right, come back into that leadership. Uh, what, how do people prepare for that? How would you actually ha- tell a team, like, to get ready for that? Or is that just coming because you had training in other areas? Well, I think it's like everything it is it's a little bit of nature versus nurture question. And I'm a big person on, on nurture. Like you can learn. You're, mm-hmm. Of course, we all have innate you know, gifts, abilities, skills, and passions, but we get better through time by being in hard situations. And I, I think about in a, what's critical to that question to me, Ray, is it's a culture question. It's when, you, when somebody succeeds or fails, you can't yet know if they failed. You have to go down the logic tree one more node and say, did you fail and learn? If you failed and learned, then you succeeded. But I would also say really critically important for leaders to help have a culture where that learning can be brought to the rest of the organization. So you have systematic enterprise learning from individuals. And when you create the system, that's beauty. I I often hold up in the transformation of VMware. A lot of people like to say, oh, the technology is not good enough. You know, there's there's everybody knows the the engineering community wants another tool or another widget or another whiz bang cool thing. And, and, and the analysts need another thing. And, and at some point, everybody's got a d- different opinion on what piece of technology works the best and what they want. It's not unlike boots in the SEAL teams. Everybody's got a different opinion on what the best boot to wear in the rain is. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, as we think about all these things, how do we strike the right balance between central decision making and complete autonomy? And, you know, there's there's and being thoughtful and intentional about those decisions and those decisions in, in, in cultures that are great are decisions that think broadly and systematically across the whole enterprise. Uh, do you have a recommendation for best Arctic boots? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, That's go, a- go barefoot and give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> Builds character, Ray. That's awesome. Uh, well, right. he, does, he's, he does start the book with, you know, pick the hard path. So, you know, and we'll talk about that, but let's extend the conversation on culture and uh, cultural agility. You've written a lot about agility in the book and explored its relationship with excellence and meaning. So in Never Enough, what does agility mean to you? You know, agility is like one of those words like leadership. Everybody's got a different definition and it never sounds quite right because there's always something it's missing. But to me, um, my thoughts about agility are really like the way SEALs plan for missions. You see, we go into a mission with a plan, but the plan from the beginning is for that plan to change. And so, you know, what I describe is that there's no playbooks. You have one playbook and it's called the meta playbook, which is the playbook for how to create the playbook in the moment. I know that sounds uh, maybe like a a tongue twister, (laughs) but, you know, it's like I've gone into enterprises, plenty of enterprises that have had an app go down and they're losing money or, you know, something has crashed, a data center, whatever it is. And, um, and, and everybody's like, well, we had a playbook for that. And you're like, no, 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 you can have a hundred playbooks. That's not going to win anything. You need one playbook. It's how do you, and this is a seal mission. How do you define the, the, the define the vision that want that you want the outcome and then the strategy, which is how you're going to get there. So the vision is the, the, where the strategy is the how, and then the execution, but importantly on the strategy to me. It's look, there are a lot of experienced people. How do you have a culture that pulls all of that experience in and says, look, there's a bunch of different ways to risk adjust and to take different, the the minimum amount of risk to achieve the agreed outcome. How do you converge on that path of of minimal risk to achieve an outcome? And and those are conversations. And that's about a decision-making system. You know, in my, my past life, I was the person that made decisions for you know, what missions our nation's sons and daughter went, daughters went on and, and you know, when we dropped bombs from planes onto the ground, it's not that that was that was just my job. And so I thought a lot about decision making and it's got to be a system. You know, I'm the decider, but I'm more importantly, I'm an input separately. And so because a lot of times my decision, if it automatically equals my input, 
I've just not created a decision-making system. I've just created a, 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 an autocracy. Yes. So what I want to do is have all a whole variety of inputs and then have the conversation so I can separate the data that people are looking at and separate the logic because we might disagree on look at, we need to look at different data. We need to look at, or we disagree on the logic that it gets applied to the data, or we disagree where that logic and data take us. And by being able to have those conversations with, uh, with great spirit, great intent and great collaboration, as you also wrote about Vala, uh, I think that's the most important thing is respecting others and celebrating that a lot of people think differently and a lot of different experiences really, really matter and drive outcomes. You know, Mike, that's a great point. And you talk about that when you talk about learn how to think, not what to think in that agility. Mm -hmm. um, the other half of that, when you talked about that, was really giving authority, gain authority by giving it away. Giving it away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How, how does that work? <laughs> right. Well, like yeah. The common notion, I mean, exactly. I kind of do know, but the common notion of leadership is like, well, why would I give that away? So... So what does that you know, do when you create that? Yeah, kind of Ray, it's such a fun topic. I'd love to spend an hour on that alone. I'll be quick. I think the most important thing is how do you self-actualize? Do uh, you need to be the one on the stage getting the award or would you rather have one of your people getting recognized? I very, very deeply would rather have people around me be recognized because their success is my success and I don't need my name up in lights. And so as soon as you get to the point of your career where you no longer need any sort of a credit because you have that confidence that, that it doesn't, that the recognition just doesn't matter. Then from there, that liberates you to, uh, to really think differently. And I think we, I just made fun of people who define leadership. And so let me define it. The, um, the, um, you know, leaders, of course, we all know they need to know how to lead and follow. But the thing that very few people understand is that the most important is knowing when to do which. And it's my mm. hypothesis that you're mostly better building a system when you can lead from the rear. When you can watch your organization either make decisions and win or make decisions and learn, both of those are beautiful for an organization. And so that takes that comfort, Ray, to be able to sit in the back and say, hey, I'm going to watch other people either succeed or learn. I know you mentioned in the book uh, about being deliberately intrusive. And you said intrusive in a way where you're, 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 you're in, it's in the spirit of helping others. I can count on um, you know, two hands, the number of people that proactively reached out to me knowing that I had a book coming to market. And uh, you and Ray are two people that, you know, you called me on a Saturday, Mike, and you're like, I see you have a book coming out. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about, you started giving me like a masterclass on how to bring a book to market. Um, only for me to realize that I thought I knew a lot until I learned a little. So you didn't think about it was a weekend. You didn't think about that. You and I, you know, had just met this year. You contacted me in the spirit of helping me achieve more. And in the process of meeting you this year, you introduced me to a brilliant CEO who's building technology in a way to bring meaning and contextual intelligence to people, knowledge workers. And he's building a company called Ren. I want you to tell us what is Ren all about and what was the gravitational pull for you to join this incredible team building an AI-powered platform that's going to bring some meaning to, to people's lives? Yeah, no, Bala, I think the intrusive is so important. I've, as mentioned, buried about 70 friends, and unfortunately, many of them have died by suicide. And I've become very unfortunately, very comfortable asking people if they've ever considered things like harm to self. Those aren't easy conversations. And 99 times out of 100, there's a, it's cringy. It's like, hey, no, no way. It's awkward, whatever. But I'll take 99 awkwards for one yes every single time. Because, you know, what we didn't talk about is I got a large advance for that book. I, all of my book, all of my speaking fees, every single penny goes to a 501c3 I started that pays off mortgages for Gold Star Widows. And so with the, with the proceeds, I've paid off seven mortgages for women wow. whose names I don't use. That's their story to tell. Now, what, what, now, so connecting that over, it's about relationships. And that's what Ren is. Ren Systems, I, I would tell you, you know, the Disrupt TV, the way to disrupt the world is to strengthen relationships. And there's so much noise out there that to use AI to figure out in, in brief 
everybody you've ever communicated with, hitting your APIs for your whatever, you know, your different emails, your Outlook, et cetera, your iOS contacts, cleaning and deduping de that data set, and then reading the entire internet every second, and then, and then using, giving you a feed that the more you interact with, the more it becomes specialized to you. It lets you know what's happening with your friends. Uh, and, and Vala, remember, uh, we were both in New York City. I was on Ren when I was killing time, waiting to go do uh, yoga with uh, the Prime Minister of India. And I literally had in my feed, Vala Afshar is doing uh, yoga with Modi. And I was like, texted you. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to see you in a second. But, but more importantly, you know, rather than celebrating like that, there's also times what Ren Systems allows you to do is be uh, there when your friends have a bad quarter, when their, their company's getting sued, or whenever there's any sort of news that you need to be reaching out to. So I would really strongly, strongly recommend to anybody who cares about being there for others is to go to rensystems.com and, and download Ren and use it. It's, it I am deeply believe, believe that it is about impact and meaning and purpose in the world. And that to me is what Ren does. It embodies your philosophy and it's frictionless. And as you just mentioned, you could literally be in a city new to both of us and have a random collision uh, with the Prime Minister of India, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> okay, it's this really goes cool. to that fact, never meaningful enough, right? This is the way to do yeah. it. So make differences where they will count the most. Uh, and this is what you have done. We're here with Mike Hayes, Chief Operating Officer, VMware, author, Never Enough, a Navy SEAL commander on living a life of excellence, agility, and meaning. You can follow Mike at this my, is Mike Hayes on X. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you, Mike. Thank, Thank you, so you much. Ray. Thank you, Vala. Take care. Thank you. Cheers. Amazing book, amazing person. He's he's just as lovely in person. You know, he's he's the real deal. He's the real deal. And he can do 50 push-ups if you're uh, not not push-ups, pull-ups. <laughs> which which again, if you've ever tried to do pull-ups, that, 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 that's a silly number. Our next guest may be able to do 50 pull-ups as well. Uh, he's an incredibly accomplished person. <laughs> David Dotson, author of The Manager's Handbook. Five simple steps to build a team, stay focused, make better decisions, and crush your competition. David Dotson is faculty uh, of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. David teaches one of the most sought-after courses at Stanford. And in 2023, The Economist listed his course as one of the three hottest courses at Stanford. David's recent uh, recipient of the MSX Teaching Excellence Award and a six-time speaker in the graduation last lecture series. David's career began as a consultant at McKinsey and, he became, and then becoming a serial entrepreneur where David operated uh, six companies as CEO uh, or executive chairman. Dave has since served as board member of more than 40 public and private companies and has been active investor in over 150 businesses. David, just like you, Ray, is frequently on TV, business commentator on CNBC, Fox News, and all the major media publications. Um, in 2000, David co-founded Sanku, I hope I'm pronouncing it pro uh, properly, which developed the only successful technology to fortify grains with life-saving micronutrients in the rural African mills. The award-winning technology was named Time Magazine's 100 Best Inventions and received the IoT Evolution Product of the Year Award by Vodafone. Through this work, Sanku has saved and improved the lives of over 5 million rural families in Africa. Amazing. You can follow David on Twitter at David Dotson 307 Welcome, David, to Disrupt TV. I'm glad to be here. It's a little embarrassing or a little intimidating following Mike because I'm 62, and I'm not sure I can get off the floor as many times as he can do a uh, pull-up. So I'm do my best, though. You you know, it, Navy SEALs are just a different – they're a different breed. They're, they're, yeah. But when we're doing mental pull-ups and breaking them into digestible, snackable tips and tactics – right, we'll go with that. <laughs> You're going with that. Um, Actually, you know, what I really liked about the book is really you're helping people break down problems, right? Often in yeah. most people's minds, things get so complicated, they get overwhelmed, they can't even figure out what to focus on, how to reprioritize or prioritize on the important piece. And half the battle is just getting that first step in place, right? When did you come to the realization that that's the one thing holding back managers and holding back managers from being successful? Yeah, so I made this. I made this evolution in my life where I was a. I was a manager. I was, as you said, I was the CEO of a handful of companies, 
And then I moved into investing and in side by side, I started teaching when I came back to Stanford at the business school and the faculty. And at some point I got fascinated with the idea that there were just some people out there that were just so much better at getting things done than others. And then these kind of larger than life CEOs and, and leaders. So I spent about three years just studying them and observing. I, this, the book I wrote, The Manager's Handbook, is not about how I ran companies. It happens to be how I wish I had run companies. But it was really the curation of this observation that I made about other managers. And what I found is that the differentiating factors among the people who are great at getting things done and everybody else was really skill-based. And I know that's a little bit kind of boring and you know, I'll talk about it, but that was the differentiating factor. And by the way, there were no exceptions. And I was looking at people like, you know, Steve Jobs and Mike Zuckerberg and, and Bezos. I mean, you know, people that we think they have X-ray vision and they can see around corners and they're, they're, they're larger than life, but they didn't actually have red capes. They just mastered the basics. And then they went and made sure their, their whole organization mastered the basics. So then I had this like, uh, you know, conundrum, which is, okay, I've, I've, I've found these five skill areas. How do I break it down in a way that just like people, like everybody who's listening today can understand. And I was watching somebody play the piano and I got thinking, you know, to play the piano, you first have to learn the difference between a sharp and a flat and the difference between the black keys and the white keys and what the pedals do. And then you put it all together and you're making music. And I started to think about these skills and it was exactly the same as there's a bunch of little basics, each one of which is not that hard to do. You put them together and you master these skills. Wow. You, you know, what I love about it is the um, just common sense simplicity in the way you guide the reader, like running meetings. Uh, you know, like you talk about John F. Kennedy would always call on people in reverse order of seniority and influence. Because if you called on the most influential person in a meeting, then the folks maybe below her in the organization will tend to gravitate toward their thoughts and beliefs uh, and vision. And I thought, wow, I don't remember the last time I ran a meeting where I was deliberate about calling on the intern or the single contributor. You know, we tend to gravitate to the VPs and the high person's opinion, the hippos in the room. Talk about, uh, you know, uh, running meetings as an example and other great nuggets of wisdom, including like the one I just mentioned, calling on the, you know, the lowest seniority first. Yeah, I, I, I like the example of running meetings. So one of the skills is the ability to seek and take advice. And we all participate in meetings. In fact, the average managers in a meeting 23 hours a day. And the idea is that to make those that meeting time as valuable as possible, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to make the best possible decisions, frankly, in the shortest shortest amount of time with the least amount of people. Right. So I looked at the people who were just exceptional at running things and how they ran meetings and they all ran meetings with certain structures in place. By the way, each one was a different than the next one. But in the book, what I wanted to do is I wanted to sort of pull out those easy to implement nuggets and harmonize it into kind of one way to run a meeting. So, you know, you just mentioned the idea about order uh, calling on people in reverse order of seniority. If you really want to pull out the wisdom of the crowd and get the benefit of having everybody in the room together, that is one of the like easiest things you can do. And you can do it tomorrow morning. Everything in the book, in that chapter on how to run a meeting, does not require this like massive restructuring of how you do things yeah. and everybody's got to re- yeah. recode themselves. It's like, hey, let's all do these six things we can all do them starting like right now and we're going to improve our ability to make good decisions. And by the way, we're going to get out of this meeting 20 minutes earlier. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> starting with clarifying questions, making sure everybody participates. It's just, you know, all three of us have managed large teams and I just wish I had that structure and that recipe to go from a good to better to best. And I just want to follow up with that because I loved I love the section about, which I think is part of running meetings and just collaborating and adding value is getting feedback. And you laid out six parts on feedback and you start with expectations uh, and then measurement. How are you going to measure it? And, and feedback itself. You ask about any obstacles that may be there. You offer your support and you make sure there's alignment. I just, I just appreciate the recipe and, and super clear, crisp, uh, guidance you provide in the book because, again, 
I, I've been giving feedback and receiving feedback all my life. Just never thought about, uh, you know, codifying it in a way that is meaningful and, and scalable. So uh, any, any thoughts about feedback? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and Vala, I love the fact that you sort of described it as a recipe because that's what I wanted to do. The, the book's called The Manager's Handbook. And the reason why I named it that way is that it's not supposed to be like a victory lap of what I did in my life or how to run things the way I did it. It's really supposed to be a how-to manual. And I told my wife, Wendy, I, when I was sat down to, to write this book, I said, I don't want this to be a book to read. I want it to be a book to be used. And so in the example of how to give feedback, so, so the first of the five skills is the ability to build a team, right? One of the ways that you build a team is, of course, you're giving people feedback along the way. And we talk about instant performance feedback and so forth. And, and in that, I thought about, OK, well, I can sort of talk about concepts of how to give good feedback, but people aren't going to be able to implement that tomorrow morning. Everything. This whole book is a tomorrow morning kind of book. Yep, and yep. I broke it down into six steps and they're easy to learn. And so when you're giving somebody feedback, just follow these six steps. It's a simple formula. Or as you said, Vala, it's a recipe. You, you do it a few times, it becomes second nature. And if you follow that recipe, you will put yourself instantly in the top 20% of managers who give feedback. And we all know either as a, as a, as a manager who's given feedback or a person who's received feedback, that most of the feedback we get is junk because it's not delivered properly. What's in the manager's head, the boss, they know what the behavior needs to change. They just don't know how to deliver it in a way that the person that they're that, that's hearing the feedback can go, okay, I get it. I got it, boss. I'll work on that tomorrow. And my sense is if they follow your recipe with certain discipline, you can become not a cook, but a chef, meaning you increase your ability for situational awareness to apply some of these principles when you're maybe pulled into an emergency meeting where you're not in control of the meeting. I just feel that the tactical advice you give can help people build certain muscles that they think they have, but they don't quite uh, have like some of the incredible CEOs you mentioned in, in terms of your research. Sorry, Ray. I'm kind of geeking out on his book because it's pretty awesome. It is a tomorrow. It's a tomorrow book. I mean, it literally is a playbook you can take to work the next day and implement. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. It is awesome. But one of the <laughs> hardest things in that book uh, is really that notion on hiring, right? And and really, mm. because you don't often get to um, hire your team from scratch, right? It's a, it's a rotation mm. process, right? And you've got to figure out how to pull those pieces together. And uh, I can't find, I remember there's a Vince Lombardi quote you quoted is very, very important, right? But these outcomes are super important as you hire for outcomes. How do you do that when... I don't know. The company's moving at 150 miles an hour. You got to change three of the four tires. Like, how do you do that? Well, it, you know, it starts with part one, which is the ability to build a team. And of course, you have to have the right inputs. So the first chapter of the book is about how to hire well. And I want to tell you a quick story. So when I was the CEO of a company and we were hiring a fair amount of people because we were growing at about 100 percent a year. I knew that we were not doing a good job hiring. I could just look at the turnover numbers and tell that we weren't doing a good mm -hmm. job of, of hiring. And by the way, Turnover is just the people who either self-select out or you're pushing them out. It's not, it's not differentiating between the A and the B players. So it's even worse. So I went and I collected, I think it was about a dozen books on hiring. Told everybody, I'll see you in a week. Read all the books. It was quite literally several thousand pages. And in the end, I had about like 20 pages. And I realized that, you know, being good at hiring, you don't have to read 20 books, okay? There's about, there's about, I think my chapter in hiring is maybe 20 pages on it. And it's distilling all of the known best practices of hiring into one chapter. Now, why don't people do it? Everybody knows you have to be good at hiring, but it's a little bit hard work, right? It's so easy to glance at someone's email, go visit with them, see if you kind of connect, is there likability? You know, you, we all call it gut feel. Gut feel is actually lazy. Being really good at hiring is harder to do. And by the way, there are multiple things in this book that you look at and you'll go, you know what? That's kind of hard to do. But if you really want to succeed, you got to do it. And by the way, it costs you about two and a half times someone's salary in total cost when you make a bad hire. And it takes about 80 hours to undo it. So, you know, if you want to be lazy, Trade, trade that 80 hours for a little extra hours on the front end. So then I put it into a step-by-step -step formula on how you go about hiring. And again, just like the meeting notion that we were talking about with, with Vala earlier, 
I wanted to pick the things that you could do in the next morning. So for example, I explained why it's essential that you, when you're interviewing, you interview as a team. I'll, I'll give you just a quick example why. If the three of us were all interviewing somebody and we were interviewing them together and then we got together and said, hey, what do you think about so-and-so? We're all making our opinions based on a separate set of data because we've all seen different data. Yeah. We have to see the same data and evaluate that together. Um, the second reason why that's a bad idea is you will always defer to the more senior person if you all have separate sets of data. But if you've all looked at the same thing and Ray says, you know, I, I what I found is that da, 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 and Vol says, well, no, wait a minute. I'm not sure I agree with that because remember earlier when he said this or earlier when or later when she said that, and you're like, you know what? You're right, Vala. You don't get those kind of dynamics. No. So the, the hiring chapter just talks about a handful of very fundamental things that you can do to increase your hiring rate. And I'll leave you with this. When I was running a company and we were in seven countries and we were 0 for 7 on country directors, we implemented this. And after that, we were 7 for 7. So it just works. That's awesome. Well, you talk about people leaving and certainly companies all uh, want to avoid, uh, you know, regrettable attrition. Uh, folks that you bring uh, successful hiring uh, only to not be able to keep the talented person for a variety of reasons. Maybe because they're not reading your 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 book. So it could be a poor management or a variety of reasons. So and one thing that's hard to do, uh, not just hiring, is keeping is is the 360 process that you reference. Would you say if it's done properly? could be a massive competitive advantage. Now I've worked for companies that had a 360 process. And as you mentioned in the book, uh, you know, uh, they're not curated, often can be hurtful commentary. Uh, people are surprised by the negativity and maybe the radical transparency in the process. So you talk about in the book, the three C's. You have to curate, you have to create a plan and you have to close the loop. Tell us, uh, you know, why the 360 process can actually be a, a, a massive competitive weapon. And are there, are there companies that do it well based on the size? Is it harder to do in a large company? I'm in a 75,000 person company. It Ray's running a 75 person company. Is it easier for me to conduct a 360 or array or, or it has no dependency in terms of size and complexity of your org structure? Well, let me, let, me, let me answer it in reverse order. So the last thing you said is whether it's easier to implement it with a larger company or a smaller company. Um, the concepts are absolutely identical. Okay. It just is more work when you have more people because you have to push the, the norms and the culture of the 360 deeper into a larger organization. So it just takes a little bit of time. There's more scale, but the concepts are the same. Okay. And the, the kind of the typical thing with the 360 is, oh, we should do 360s because I read it on a blog or something. And then you Google no, and you ask 360 no. questions to answer. <laughs> we'll do that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you send out, yeah, there's plenty of apps and so forth that you can do to collect the information. And then you just dump the data onto the individual. And that creates all sorts of problems. First of all, you know, we live in a world where we, we say things on the keyboard that we would never say face-to-face. -face. So it's even more dangerous now. But if you just dump all this curated, uh, uncurated data on someone, you're running the risk of, of actually hurting someone's feelings, mm -hmm. but sending them a mixed message. Uh, so what you want to do is, the, is you curate the data, which is what you just mentioned, and then you create a plan. So let's say that, I, let's say that I'm responsible for, for getting the data on a 360. I look at the data and I look for common themes. And I say, okay, common theme is that this person is coming off a little bit aloof and people think it's the arrogance or something or whatever, but I've, I've identified a common theme. I don't just say, hey, you know, you kind of come off as arrogant, go fix that. <laughs> so that's why you create a plan. And you say, so, so here's how we're going to address this. And then the last thing is you got to close the loop with the people who provided the data. And again, it's, it's all recipe, okay? So, so you, you do it this way. You say, here's what I heard. Here's what I'm going to work on right away. Here's what I'm going to work on, but I'm going to wait until whenever. And here's what I'm not going to work on. And here's why. Because the people who, who provide the data also need to know that they were heard along the way. And then the book kind of outlines going to your, to your second question about implementation, how you implement 360. You don't just like shove it out to the organization and say, let's all be let's let's all be hip now and do 360s. It takes a while to roll it out in a way that people have confidence. But imagine the power of the information you have from your workforce if you've done a really good job of pulling that information out of what they're thinking. And then you create a plan around that. 
And that's what the book talks about. This about is hard. This is, 12 pages. It's not this that is hard to do. It's hard to do, but you have a very prescriptive, you have a very, pers- it's, 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 the book is full of precision, but there's, it, there's, uh, it, it's precise, small steps. It's almost like a Kaizen approach. It, yeah. There's nothing yeah. that you introduce in your 20 page on feedback or 12 page on multidimensional complex thinking. It's it's just a series of logical steps, uh, but it's hard work. You know, again, I don't I'm not sure if I've ever worked for a company that that does it that way. Yes. So yeah, no, we can definitely see it that way. I actually wanted to spend some time. We'd be remiss if we missed the last chapter talking about quality, right? And I think that quality thing is, is really, really important that you have right there, right? Thinking about how you get there. Um, you have a chapter that talks about walk behind the tractor. What does that mean, right? So it's not intuitive to walk behind the tractor. Uh, so... Yeah, that uh, I saved the, the the fifth skill area, which is an obsession with quality, which, by the way, Ray, was probably the most surprising observation I had uh, for the last because it, it, it is my favorite. And I think that that chapter walk behind the tractor is my favorite. I, I want to just say why an obsession with quality ended up being so important among these leaders is it's not about sort of take care of the customers and business ethic and so forth, business ethic and so forth. It was that high quality is the best way to make money because it's harder to bring in a new customer than keep a customer. You're only gonna keep customers if they're satisfied with you. Uh, It gives you pricing power. You attract the best people, you keep the best people and so forth. So there's a sort sort of flywheel effect. But a lot of people have like this this incorrect view of qualities. Uh, Bain and company did a study on uh, CEOs and what they thought of their their, their quality. Okay, so this is kind of interesting. So uh, 83% of them said that they offered a superior product or service. Guess what? They checked with their customers. It was 8%. Oh. That is like the, the you know that's the goal order of magnitude. Wow. Right. Wow. And um it, by, by the way they, they call it the Lake Wobegon effect based on that Garrison Keeler um I love it. Yep. Uh, NPR thing really where, where he said that ha- all of the students were above average. Um <laughs> you know this this inflated view of where we are. So walk behind the tractor comes from where I grew up. So I grew up in rural Colorado. My dad manufactured farm equipment and you sell farm equipment through farm dealers. So he, so he never sold his equipment directly to the end user, but what he wanted to do is spend time with the end user. So on the weekends I'd go out with my dad and we would literally walk behind the tractor where he would have a little handheld recorder and he would talk to the farmer and find out exactly what is happening with his product. And then he could go fix it again. He didn't ask his managers. He didn't do NPS surveys. He walked behind the tractor. Well, uh, you know, a common everyday example of that or, or, or a more contemporary example is like Intuit. And they call it follow me home. Well, you think about Intuit, you know, QuickBooks and TurboTax and so forth. They have dominated these sectors for literally decades. And you think about what the software does isn't actually that fancy, right? I mean, you're just like filling out forms to do your taxes, right? Well, the reason why Cook and his company have have dominated that for so long is that they follow them home. They essentially walk behind the tractor and they're always ahead of the competition on what their customers are thinking. And that so so that chapter talks about concepts of how they do that. And it's everything from Intuit, a high tech company, all the way to Safelite Autoglass. You know, how how prosaic could it get to replacing chipped windshields? But that's why they've stayed in front for so long. Don't be a legend in your own mind and walk behind the tractor. Put those two things together and you're ready to go. This is amazing. We're here with David Dodson, author of the Manager's Handbook. You can follow him at Dave Dodson at 307. And you can catch all his books on Amazon. And if you're lucky enough to take a class at GSB, you're going to want to take that class. You and I need to audit some courses and get we, in business class. Just sit Stanford. in the back and just listen. Yeah, that's what you we're and doing. I should, you come any, by. Any we'll time, hang out at Stanford. You're my guest. Anytime. Come by Stanford, oh. hang out at the house, and then I'll go over to – we'll go over hang out at Harvard and MIT. Like, uh, we'll I'll, I'll, even, I'll even slip you into any of some of the really good classes. Oh, oh okay. Let's talk oh, more that, afterwards. That's awesome. All right. That, that, <laughs> Thank you so perfect. much for being on the show. We'll catch Thank you in the so green much. room if you're there. And, yeah, go from there. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. <laughs> and there it goes. Another episode, 337, flying by so quickly. Hopefully everybody caught every second. <laughs>
Yeah, you know, you're not surprised why uh, Mike and David are best-selling authors because, you know, in the last hour or so, just incredible wisdom, um, you know, and uh, it is a recipe book with David because um, it's, 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 it's tactical in nature, meaning you can use the book right away. You can learn from it right away. You can literally take his book and run a meeting more effectively the next day. And, and, and Mike, as David said, is an intimidating person. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know and, I, I, I would say Mike's book, what was interesting about it is it gives you a, a framework in terms of changing your mind shift, right? Uh, you're, you're really looking at things in a different way. You might observe some things you hadn't put it all together, right? Yeah. And when you read David's book, I'm like, I'm ready to go. I want to go. I want to make yeah, this thing yeah. happen, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and those two together, I think, would be a very interesting panel, like uh, put, putting them have oh, together. Oh, it would be amazing. And then at the end, they could do a pull-up pull contest. Oh, uh, no, no pull-up contest. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, Mike in person, he's like Captain America. He's like 6'4" jacked you know um you know you 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 figured he had to play in you know basketball or football and and then once you find out he was a seal for 20 years yeah he's he is <laughs> super, super super intimidating okay uh speaking of great amazing guests next week we have one of, one of our favorite guests and we haven't talked to her in in, in a few years so i'm really anxious uh, to connect with her francis frey oh, wow and, yeah. and morris francis was on the show it had to be pre-covid Yes. Uh, and she was just amazing, amazing. Uh, and Ann Morris, authors of Move Fast and Fix Things. <laughs> that should be everyone's mantra. Move fast, be helpful, and I fix things. I think I break uh, things when I move fast. So yeah, I don't know yeah, you know, <laughs> that's, I don't know anyone that moves as fast as you do. That is true. But you do <laughs> fix a lot of things. Uh, and Patrick Hins, author of Failure, counterintuitive. You know, failure is not an option. Failure is not not, not an option. An option. <laughs> not not an option. <laughs> That's right. So uh, super uh, big big thinkers next week, just like this week. It's if it's Friday, it's disrupt TV. Thank you so much for watching. We're getting closer towards the end of the year. Please continue to recommend guests to us, and we'll do our best. We may not be able to fit them in the rest of the calendar year. You know, we're approaching twelve hundred interviews at Disrupt and getting closer and closer to our 400 episodes. So, but we'll do our best to make sure working with our number one producer on earth, Al, to get your recommendations onto uh, as early as hopefully next year. Ray, closing hey, comments. Hey, we got some surprises on the way. We'll share them in a little bit. Uh, we're doing some interesting thing with our video feeds. So you'll, you'll see them in a while, but hey, happy Friday, everyone. Take care and we'll catch you on the next show. See you next week.